I love Dostoevsky. I think Crimes and Punishment, up until the very end, I wasn't sure how I was feeling about him. Many times I felt very tortured as a reader. Let's say unnecessarily tortured and punished as a reader. I could see there were some amazing moments in the book early on. I could see that there's magic in here, but the main character was just tormenting himself in such an unlikable way with zero fun, zero Kafkaesque fun of like the trial, for instance, or something. Situations that I felt I would have been enduring easily for three pages were 30 pages. And I thought, Jesus Christ, can I just get to the end of this book? And then at the very end, the payoff was very big. In opposite to the entire book for the first time that I read it, because what's happening inside the main character is so bombastic at times. It just keeps going and going and the thoughts are never ending and they are way too long and too convoluted and everything is too self-centered and everything is pushed to an extreme in the way that the inner dialogue goes and kind of the story unfolds from a main character's perspective. And then the end is of the most gentle, of the most subtle kind. And I didn't realize it at the time when I read it, but now as I reflect back on it, it was a beautiful way to end. And so kind of in stark contrast to everything else that happens in that book. But I thought, okay, I've done it. I read Crimes and Punishment. I, you know, that's a great book. I'm happy now that I've read it, but let me not touch Dostoevsky anytime soon because it was not as much fun as I, as I would have wanted it to be. And then I picked up The Idiot. And that was more lighthearted. That had areas of tremendous fun. And then areas where I felt it was tedious or it was just going on and on and on. It was very hard to to work through it for me. But again, I ended up really loving it. And then I think the second book, the first one became, like it started some of his big ideas, I think, and themes and ways of creating experience through the writing and reading started falling more into place for me. Now I'm reading The Brothers Karamazov. And this is definitely my most favorite read in terms of, I read half the book now, and I've never read any of these prior two books. I haven't gotten to half of it, which are all three big books, very large books, with this much enjoyment. Like I'm like breezing through this book. But now even more, like it's like, like you're getting to know the writer deeper and deeper the more you read and some of the very big themes of his kind of crystallize are more alive for me in this book than two prior books. One of the core themes that I'm experiencing reading Dostoevsky in all his characters is the theme that you, and he never says any of this, None of this is ever expressed in a direct way. This is my interpretation. But the way I read it, the thing that stands out by example, not by spelling it out and saying it, is that one of the core beliefs of Dostoevsky experiencing the world and humanity in himself and putting that on paper is this idea that you cannot lie to yourself and that the root of all evil starts there. That the moment you start lying to yourself is the beginning of hell. And every step you keep on the road of lying will only intensify that hell. And it does not matter if anyone ever notices, and it does not matter if you notice. Actually, the less the world notices directly this is a lie, and the less you notice this is a lie, the bigger and more intense the hell you're in. And how most of what is happening in these characters' life that are I mean, his characters are very, are dramatic characters. There's drama happening. There's real conflict, sometimes life and death and crime, 
but there's always intrigue, there's always lying, there's always love at stake, there's always honor at stake, all these things that are very, very important. And so there's a ton of conflict and a ton of drama inside and out these characters. And they're all kind of, it's this big mess of connections, of threads. This person did A to B, but B person did this to C, and C is related to A in this way. It's The longer you read, the more complicated this crazy web of cause and effect is. But it all is this complicated, this dramatic, this painful, this confusing, this terrifying, this evil, this overwhelming, because people are running away from their truth. That's like they have to build bigger and bigger. There's bigger and bigger lies that are being built to maintain the ability to not face the truth. And if people were just truthful, all of this collapses and the story is the simplest ever. A likes B, B likes A, they get together and the rest wants to do something else. <laughs> That's it. That's the end of the story. There's no drama, no conflict. It's very simple. But because all of them cannot be honest with who they are and what they feel, and they all are pretending to themselves and others that something totally different is going on, they are generating this craziness that is being constructed inside of them, outside in the real world. They're making it real. They're making the world what's inside of them, which is a web of lies and confusions and intrigues and hidden meanings and, you know, conspiring against and for. And all that is a big kind of theater to entertain you away, to distract you away from just the truth. This is what I feel. This is what's really true right now for me. All of his characters, all of them. There's usually one hero that is honest Within the chaos, I mean, in Crimes and Punishment, there is. It's the journey of the main character of not wanting to see the truth and putting us through that person's hell very intensely until he finally lets go, right? But in all the Brothers Karamazov, there is one character that is kind of the shower of truth within all the chaos. And you can see how that person is generating at first even more chaos because the one that says the truth amongst liars is going to be massacred. <laughs> it's not the kind of person that people want to listen to. And there's so, the more I read him, the more I think, wow, it feels, I could see how as a reader, you'd go at times, these people are caricatures. Like nobody's this crazy. But then I go, no, that's probably how everybody is. It's just compressed. You know, most people are not that crazy in 30 hours of their life, right? Or whatever that is, the period, let's say a year of their life. But we're all that crazy, you know, inside if you really follow our thought processes. And I want to highlight two little stories from the book that stood out for me on this topic. So he, at some point in the book, he Early in the book, we encounter this elder, this sort of saintly figure, because one of the brothers is at the monastery and is sort of like a young monk of sorts in training. And you can tell that that brother is the sweet brother, the innocent one. And the other brothers are not so sweet, not so innocent. They're in direct conflict with each other and especially in conflict with the father of the house. And so early we get introduced to this elder and this elder is 
what you would want, uh, what saintly wisdom could be, right? Like it represents a real purity of heart, a real deep wisdom about love and faith. Much further down in the book, the elder eventually dies, right? He's very old, he's very sick, eventually he dies. And there's a segment where Alyosha, which is the youngest brother, that's kind of the monk in training, is... We get to read his writings about all the stories that Father Zosima has told him, the elder, and about his life and his youth and all the stuff. Very, very fun to read. Very fun uh, the way he's written it and the way you can like read it. And in that, we get to learn sort of the elders, some key moments of the elders that on the path to this kind of enlightened life. And one of those moments is when he's already, he lived a very frivolous wealthy young life was kind of an officer and you know was all about money and women and adventure and status and but when he was young he had a a brother an older brother that had gone through a disease which sort of accelerated his enlightenment like for a couple of weeks as the kid was about to die this whatever 13 year old or something he somewhat touched enlightenment it was enlightened it saw love it had total peace it realized god and everything and it was just loving his mother and everybody was not worried about dying and that had really been a very kind of influential experience for this monk when he was a really a young kid but then he went on to forget about that and become kind of a normal teenager and full of himself but again he got into a conflict situation where he acted very very wrongly and then he sort of all collapsed inside of him and he had like an enlightened moment himself and then for a while he goes in the town he becomes a fashion and people come to him to hear kind of him speak about the world and everything along the lines there's an old man in town that is has very high status that is very respected very wealthy it's a very stoic character people don't too much about him but everybody respects that person and later after he dies it turned out that he was donating tremendous amounts of money to all kinds of charity and helping all kinds of people but this kind of important man comes and visits the young monk because he hears all these stories about how, you know, enlightened he seems to be. Because in a duel, he told his enemy, he, you know, told his enemy to just shoot him because he shot just, you know, he threw away his gun and was like, I was wrong. I'm not going to shoot. I think you should shoot and just end me. And I, you know, I'm sorry and I love you. And the guy shoots and misses him. Right. And then everything that's an interesting story. Everybody in the you know village wants to talk about it. And so this elder seeks this young monk and sits down and listens to, to him and asks him the question at some point, do you believe that heaven is here on earth? And he says, Yes, I believe that heaven is within us here on earth. You can live in heaven if you choose to. And so this old man immediately and obviously is super fascinated by the young monk and he starts visiting him every night sitting by him asking him questions listening pondering and then leaving him, and then coming the next night and people already the town at some point start why is he visiting this young boy every night and like talks for hours with him all the while the young monk can tell that there's some deep secret in this man that he's not yet willing to reveal but he can also tell that he loves him and that as long as he comes he'll answer and he'll sit with him and talk and so the elder man comes over the entire time this man is asking a lot of leading questions and all these questions sort of evolve around this idea of how important is it to reveal your true self to the world and so you can tell the entire time oh there's a very deep secret about who he really is that he's kept away his whole life but that he's very aware of and very tempted to maybe reveal he just needs the courage he needs the encouragement he needs something to be able to do it and after a long time of these conversations the man eventually looks at the young monk 
and tells him, I have murdered somebody. Many years ago, I was in love with this woman and she didn't love me. And she had given her heart to some soldier that was about to come back. And I fought for her when I realized I cannot have her. One night, showed up at her house. All the circumstances happened to be perfect. And I went into her bedroom as she was sleeping. And I put a knife through her heart and killed her. And that came out of this almost insane passion of loving her so much, I could not live with the fact that another man could have her if I don't have her. And then after he murders her, he explains how he had to steal some items, but the kind of items that a peasant would steal or a servant, not the small expensive things, the big clunky ones that would seem appealing and not the paper notes that are really important, but just the, you know, the little items that would seem to somebody who doesn't know what's valuable. So he makes the scene look like it was one of the servants or peasants and disappears. And as circumstances would have it, there was a servant that was just fired, that hated her, that was drunk at a tavern a night before saying that he'll kill her one day and, you know, chased him around and he was drunk in a ditch and he had a knife in his pocket. But a boom, but a bang, you know, they got the guy. And before they could bring him to trial, the guy, the, the servant becomes very sick and dies in a high fever one night in the cell. Case closed, right? Nobody's looking for anybody. That was the murderer. That's it. That's another big theme of Dostoevsky, which I love, which is that guilt and sickness or emotional pain and sickness always come hand to hand with Dostoevsky. People always, when they're at the most inner torment, they get sick in Dostoevsky. They always get sick. People, when they have dark, deep secrets, they always have some ailment of the body. Like this, that's a, a theme I see. And because he went through having his whole life having epilepsy, there is, I think, almost always, or at least in the last two books, The Idiot and The Brothers Karamazov, there's always a character that has that too. In this case, it's the innocent man who got sick and died. Yes, but the innocent man was scared to death, right? The innocent man was caught and would get lynched because he killed some lady. And so he dies, you know, fever. That fever, in my interpretation, that's, I mean, it, one is elegant storytelling because there's no trial. There's also not an alive man that's innocent anymore. So that has implications for this. But I've seen it in other situations as well where people are scared to death and then they get sick. Regardless of that, he moves on with life, the murderer, and works really hard to build a good life and says, you know, finds this woman. No, at first, I think he, he works really hard and he builds a fortune. And for 10 years or something, he sort of totally forgets about this. This is totally outside of his mind. And he never feels any trepidation about it because, you know, he loved so much. There was no other option. Like he knows in his heart he could not have done anything else in that moment. He was crazy in love, basically. But then eventually, he marries and he has children. And all of a sudden, he starts having nightmares about the murder. And he starts having difficulty loving his wife and loving his children because they look at him, they love him so much. And he is now faced with the mirror of, how can I accept that love? I'm not who you think I am, right? And so... He does all kinds of charity and he does all the things. Like when you look at that man, everybody that ever known him or dealt with him would be like the most respectable, honest, direct, hardworking. All the good he does, but he does it in silence. What a good, good man. His wife, his children, everybody thinks he's an amazing man. But he knows what the truth is, that he's a fucking murderer. And that he let an innocent man die because of it. And so the more he has worked to forget what he's done to overcome it by being such a good 
person. The more the world treats him as something that is not true, which is such a pure and perfect person. And now he's basically, his hell is that. He cannot accept this growing admiration and love that is directed towards him because he knows that's not the truth. And he tells the young monk that he's been thinking for a long time about coming out, coming clean, telling the world about this. And that he has proof that because he knows people will not believe him. And it's been, whatever, 17 years. But he has proof. He has personal items from her. He has letters he stole from her. He has like all little details that would prove that he did it. But then what will come of his wife, who's an angel and innocent? What of his children? Like he's going to ruin all these people, these good people, by being honest. He can't do that. And so what is he to do? He watched this young monk that he eventually got convinced is a saint, is enlightened. And he asked him all the questions. And now he's at the point where he looks at him and he goes, tell me, should I say the truth? After he told him about all the bad consequences that would follow, nobody would believe it. They would not accept that he was it. His wife would get ill. His children would hate him and hate themselves. All this drama would happen. Should I admit it? Should I come out and say and speak the truth? And the young monk says, yes, I think you should. Say the truth. Trust everything else will be as it is. You have to say the truth. And then at first it's like, oh, great relief. You're right. I know this is the right thing. You know, kissing hands and everything. But then he keeps coming back at night. And the young monk realizes that, you know, there's some nervousness and still some more questions about. But what if this? But what if that? But what if this? Then the questions change and he seems to be a little angry. Starts almost fighting with the young monk. Telling the young monk that wouldn't it be more fair? I've been living in hell for 17 years. 10 years I didn't know I was in hell. And then I awoke to my hell. I've been burning. My flesh has been burning in hell every day, every night. Isn't it more right for me to continue carrying this cross? <laughs> carrying this burden and being in my hell to maintain a heaven for the people around me. Now, you know, isn't that good? That's good shit because I believe that this is the sort of rationale we all apply. It first is a, I could have not done differently. Maybe then it becomes a, I found a successful way to completely forget about this by completely busying me with something else. But deep down, it's always there. Then it's a shit and I realize maybe I should say something. And then it's the, oh no, what about all the what ifs? All the bad things that could happen to all the people. And then it's a, well, maybe what I've been doing so far is the right thing. Because it's just personally I'm going to be suffering. This is even more suffering than saying the truth. Yeah, that's funny. The young monk basically maintains a very simple line, which is say the truth. Yes, say the truth. See, that's the nice thing about someone's truth. It's so simple. Live it, say it, act it. But what if all the what ifs in the world are irrelevant? It's a simple principle. Say the truth. Trust that everything will fall into place. You say your truth, people can then respond and whatever. That's outside your control. But you say the truth. The man gets really mad at him at this point, sort of convinced himself he's not going to do it, right? But then comes back one night again and seems very sweet and has another conversation at the end. He goes, okay, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, tomorrow, I'm turning, uh, it's my birthday. He's turning, I don't remember number 50, 60, and there's going to be a big gathering and I'm going to tell the truth. And the young monk is blessing him and he leaves. And after a short while, he comes back and he just sort of like comes back 
walks to the young monk, sits next to him, looks at him, looks down, doesn't say anything for a while, gets up, leaves again. And then he opens the door again and he says, remember that I came back twice. Remember that I came back a second time. And then he leaves. And the next morning, it's the big gathering, and he does go up, and instead of giving a birthday speech, he tells everybody about the murder, and that he was the murder, and he provides the proof here, like some personal items of hers. He has some love letters between the two I stole, and they don't believe him, right? The whole town is like, no, that can't be. That didn't happen this way. And he gets sick. And then a doctor comes to visit him and goes, well, I think he it might be insanity. He must have lost his mind. And maybe the whole like telling the, about the story of death is some sort of like, and he's in delirium and don't quite can tell what's going to happen with him. And so the young monk goes to visit him afterwards and meets this man physically in a terrible condition. And to me, in my reading, this is 17 years of rotting inside. And then once it's revealed, it just comes outside. Like the sickness that he carried inside of him came out. Now, on the surface, at this point, if I stop in the story, you'd think, well, that's a bummer. Wouldn't it be nice if once he brought out the truth, he is youthful, more pretty, <laughs> more straight. But it's like 17 years. It's a long time. And the guilt he carried with him, that's a heavy guilt. It's not kind of a throwaway, you know, I, I say the lie. I said, you're pretty and I thought you're ugly that day or something. <laughs> that's like, two lives. yeah, he took two lives. You know, two innocent lives. And one of them being the woman he loved and the other one being a servant, right? Like kind of also very lives that need protection, like that are not sort of, a, he didn't fight, you know, on a battleground and kill somebody. So the young man goes to visit him and he's very sick. And you can already immediately tell he's going to die soon. But as he speaks with him, he tells him like he's in that sort of same place that his young brother was before he died, where he, this old man is telling him, you were right. Heaven is on earth because I am in heaven right now. I finally know what peace means. And it's the sweetest and it's the most glorious. And I'm so full of love and I'm so happy and I'm going to die and I'm okay. I'm happy dying. And he dies. And nobody believed it. Everybody thought he was sick. His wife still loved him. His kids are still looking. Everybody's okay. Everybody was worried about all the people that he was responsible for. Their lives went on totally fine. But he was able to exit hell and enter heaven. To say the truth. Say and live your truth. And that's beautiful and powerful story that is a theme. It's very similar to crimes and punishment as a whole storyline. Mine is the details of like dying at the end or all that. But this, when you do something, no matter if nobody ever knows about this, you know. And if you're lying to yourself, and here's the trick, if you're lying to yourself, you know, a part of you knows. That's why self-forgiveness is much more important than forgiving others. Because and it's kind of a tricky concept, like how do I even approach this? But I remember hearing somebody talk about this and I was surprised about the idea that at the end of the day, all of your anger, all of your resentment, anything, all the hatred, everything that you have inside of you that's truly negative is in full reality directed inwardly. It is your hatred for yourself projected on these people, your anger towards yourself projected on these things and people. And you're so full of hate for yourself or anger or whatever, because you know everything, every sin in this way that you've ever committed. And if you think about it, is there anyone on earth you've ever lied to as much as you've lied to yourself? No. 
Is there anyone you've hurt more than you've hurt yourself? In my case, I don't think so. Is there anyone you've been more critical, more punishing, more disappointing? I mean, in all the ways that we can treat people bad over a lifetime, no human in our life have we treated worse than ourselves. And even the ones that are trying to do things to treat themselves well because they're treating themselves so poorly are treating themselves horrendously. The father in the brothers Karamazov is one of the most despicable characters of all of them, right? He's sort of the, the one that started a lot of the drama because he's one of the most despicable characters. And he doesn't care for his children and the women in his life and anybody in his life. And he's just selfishly into pleasure, into, you know, drinking women and amassing money selfishly from hoarding money. That's all he cares about. And he will lie and he will change his mind and will break his promises and he will do it, admitting it, laughing and saying, I'm such a buffoon. What kind of a man is that? Even he who on the surface you could look at and go, what a selfish prick, right? Has sex with all these women, had drinks all day, is rich sitting in his rich house, hoarding more and more money and is lying and acting any way he wants and then tells everybody, well, I'm a fool and I don't care. Doesn't have any respect for anybody, doesn't care for anything. That seems like somebody that's treating themselves really well, right? He gives himself everything he wants, right? It seems very selfish. But, you know, when you look at it from the right angle, it's clear that all of this is self-punishment. All of this is a way to torture himself because there's no real peace in these pleasures. And like, I'm almost tempted to write versions of Dostoevsky books, like the write the five-page summary of what the story would be like if everybody was saying the truth. If everybody admitted who they are and what they want and accepted what happened, it would be like the most boring but beautiful like five minute, this is what, I, you know, this person said this and then this person admitted, I'm really afraid of that. And boom, 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 boom. Life would be so peaceful and simple, so gentle and kind. And the only reason these books are fucking 100,000 pages long and 40 hour reads is because these people go insane in running away from themselves. They run away to insanity and they make everyone else in their life insane. Everyone that is also in this game of lying to themselves will look at the lies of others and believe them or will have to respond their own inner lies to deal with them. Only the person that's sane and truthful can see through all this and just see human suffering. People just don't know how to be themselves fully and be okay. And then it just feels, you know, tenderness towards these people and love. And in exactly this way, our lives are unfolding in many ways, especially during the times we torture ourselves, but often also at times where we think everything is fine. We think I've got everything under control. That old man, businessman seemed to have a good life, had forgotten about this whole thing. Life moved on. And that was it. And he said, I never had any guilt because she had to die. There was no other way. <laughs> it's beautiful, right? He was just like, there was no other way. And the servant that died, he was like, well, he caught a cold. He would have died anyways. So for 10 years, that was his story. It was like, he had to die and he got, he was sick anyways. So it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> yes, not much has really happened here. Sometimes I really regret we don't do video yet <laughs> because your facial expressions to this explanation, you know, are just perfect. Yeah, and you know, the bullshit we tell ourselves, it's so obvious. These explanations we give ourselves why we can't say the truth. Oh, I want to say the truth, but I can't because. If I say the truth, they won't love me. If I say the truth, I'll hurt people. If I say the truth, I lose everything. And then what will I be able to do for this? If I say the truth, I won't be able to continue the good that I'm doing now in a fake way to hide the truth. If I say the truth, big scary thing might happen. So I have to keep 
lying to myself with the lie there being that you cannot say the truth and you cannot take responsibility for who you were and who you are. And that is the beginning and the end of most of human suffering. A lot of inner suffering that we have today is the inability to just say, feel and act out your truth right now, which is simple, but not easy, obviously. Otherwise, we all would do it. It requires the courage to face a world that will at times reject that, many times reject that, which is another theme to close out this episode of Dostoevsky, which I love. It's bittersweet, but it's this, when we see, because we cannot, because we are too afraid to accept the truth, our inner truth in any given moment, we despise and hate when we see someone accept, speak, and act their truth fully in the moment. We are afraid of it. We're critical of it. We're angry at it. We despise it. People will look at the one that says the truth and be like, how can we nail him on a cross? ASAP. How can we get rid of that guy? And it's not because the thought process is necessarily, I'm not living my truth. So I want other people to be liars. So let's kill the liar. That's That would be too honest. You can think that thought, you don't have hate for that person in your heart. It is that in many little ways, we are irritated and annoyed by these people because we think and are convinced they're doing things you ought not to do. You're saying the truth and are putting your wife through hell? How dare you? Since I don't do that, you know? You are kind and giving when you have so little to give and so little to offer to the world. Instead of first amassing enough, instead of first having more, which is what I believe I need to do to feel safe and secure before I give to others, you give your last piece of bread to a beggar? How dare you? You're stupid. You're dumb. You're irresponsible. You're kind to the wicked, to the poor, to the dirty, to the sick. How dare you pretend being a saint? How dare you pretending to be better than us just because we don't do the same thing. All the while, nobody has ever pretended anything. Nobody, that person, person that truly speaks, acts, feels their truth in the moment. They don't come to you and go, you shouldn't be the way I am. That's somebody that is in lie, not in truth. But we will attach these stories to them because we carry the guilt and shame of the liar, of someone that isn't living acting out and speaking their truth. And we know it. Nobody do we despise more than ourselves. Nobody do we hate more than ourselves because of all the lies that we've lived, because of all the punishment we've dished out to us, all the injustices that we have acted on ourselves and through us, through the world. And so do we want, and when we want, a more beautiful, a more peaceful, a simpler life and world? It all starts with telling the truth to ourselves.